Some time after Joseph had shared his dreams with his family, he was sent by his father to go and check on his brothers, who were away looking after the family flocks. After a considerable search, he found them near a place called Dothan, but the brothers saw him in the distance and plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Reuben, the eldest, said, Let's not take his life. He said, Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Thank you and welcome to part two of Living the Dream. I'm sure you've either seen this sign or heard uh, this voice, mind the gap. <laughs> Annoying, isn't it? What it does is trying to alert us to the fact that there's often a gap, sometimes a big one, between when we get off the train and the platform, apparently at Bank Station which is the nearest station to the new Kingsgate London venue, there's a gap of 30 centimetres, so I'm going to have to be specially careful when I get off the train. Well, today I want to talk about a far more important gap that we all experience sometimes many times across our lives. It's a time gap. How many of you experience that? You hear a promise from God and... There's a period of waiting between when you get the promise and when the promise gets fulfilled. Ever had that? I have many times. Or you're praying for something and you know that it's from God, you know that the answer's on the way, but there's a gap, there's an in-between time. And I believe those in-between times in our lives are vital times, but they're also times that we need to navigate with great care. How many of you like waiting? I really don't like waiting. I wish sometimes, don't you, that you get a dream from God and then tomorrow it happens. Well, I believe in instantaneous miracles where we pray and God heals or does something amazing, incredible, sudden supernatural financial provision. How many could do with some of those? But in our lives, there's often a process and there's normally a gap, an in-between time between vision conception and vision fulfillment. 
And rather those times being negative, I believe we need to see those times as preparation for purpose. Preparation for purpose. Joseph had such a time. Those of you around last week, you'll know that he's at 17 and he has this double dream of future greatness. He's going to be lifted somehow above his brothers. Imagine what he then feels when shortly after, far from being lifted above his brothers, he's down in a system and he's looking up at them. The irony is huge. The one who was his father's favorite, proudly wearing that stunning coat, suddenly is stripped naked and left in a place of vulnerability and shame. The one who had a promise that things were going to take off. The narrator very cleverly and carefully tells us he's going down to Egypt. The one who we know was going to be somebody who was in effect going to be prime minister has to go as a slave and eventually becomes a prisoner. Have you ever experienced a time in your life when you thought things were on the up and immediately they looked like they took a reverse? question is, what do we do during those times? This is more than theory for Karen and myself. Many of you know when we first came to Peterborough, we had what I would call a four-year tough preparation season. We had the dream, think big or you'll limit me. We had a dream for a large strategic church. As I often say, you know, people were staying away in their thousands. It was like we got here and far from all the circumstances lining up and confirming that it was a right move, actually we could have been tempted to doubt it was God at all. Financially, it was tough. We had to learn to work on our family lives together. It was hard getting the ministry going. But as I look back, I can honestly say that I learned probably more lessons in those four tough years than maybe, I don't know about in all the 30 years since, but in in many sense, that season was a vital season because Rather than running from God during that season, we pressed into him and said, okay, God, what are you wanting to get us ready for? What are you wanting to prepare in our lives? How many of you know that we all go through such seasons? But for some of you, you may literally be, you're starting out in life, you've got a future dream, and you can identify with a sense of a preparation season. But as I look back, I'm aware that that wasn't the only preparation season we had. Church had been going for about 20 years We were in the Kingsgate building. We had an amazing journey of blessing and favor. And some some friends from outside from another ministry came. They came to visit, came to chat. And then they said, can we pray for you? And I said, great, I'm always up for prayer. And the leader of that that particular group said, I believe God's saying to you, you're going into half time. And the half time is going to be longer than you think. Now, for somebody who doesn't like waiting, that was mixed news. But I also know, knew as a football fan, by the way, as I, have I told you recently how well Man City are doing? <laughs> anyway, uh, just in case I hadn't, they're doing great. Anyway, I, I was out half time and I knew what that meant. I knew that it meant we'd had, as it were, a great run, but God was taking us back for if you, you know, the, the purpose of half time is like a team chat, get ready for the next season. And sure enough, it was longer than I was anticipating. It wasn't tough in the same way that the early seasons. But do you know, God can prepare you even when it's not tough. God can prepare you if you'll listen to him 
if you'll follow his word and his spirit. There is an easier way to learn as well as a harder way. How many want to learn the easy way? By listening to God and to his spirit. Amen. I've got a witness from over there, right there. So, question is, what can we do in waiting? What can we do in preparation? Now, there's one sense, even if you don't feel you're in a preparation season, how do you know, in, what, in, in, in reality, we're all being prepared for what God has for us, both in this life and in eternity. So, two key lessons for preparation for purpose. The number one is this. It's an issue of perspective. Trust, say trust. Trust, trust that God is preparing you. Trust that God is preparing. So it's easy to feel when we're going through these times, when promises seem to be delayed, when you're waiting for dreams to be fulfilled, that maybe God has abandoned you. And you have to deal with all kinds of negative emotions. Whereas, can I say, you need to be encouraged to trust that if you've heard from God and you're walking with Him, <clears throat> He is preparing you. He hasn't abandoned you. In fact, the delay is a sign of his love and his kindness to you because guess what? God knows when we're ready and he loves us too much to promote us before we're ready. And that's what we see with Joseph. And that's the power of a story like Joseph. Do you know, we've got one big advantage over Joseph as we read the Joseph story. We know the end and we know it all works out well. Joseph didn't know that. That's why the scriptures are written for our encouragement. And we can know that although a lot of what happens was directly, let's put the responsibility where it lies, directly to do the evil of others, we know that there's a sovereign God who doesn't cause the evil, but because he's good and because he's sovereign, he is nonetheless taking the evil things that happened to Joseph and he's weaving them into his plan. He's getting him to where he needs to be to be prime minister. And at the, so he's organizing the circumstances and at the same time, he's dealing with Joseph because Joseph at 17 wasn't ready. Let me ask you a question. If you were Pharaoh, would you have trusted the 17-year-old Joseph to run your empire. I wouldn't. Pharaoh wouldn't have done. And can I say, God knew that Joseph wasn't ready to do that. Remember last week, we said God has a what? Great purpose for your life. But I think there's a principle sometimes. As I heard uh, somebody pray over me in those early days, the greater the call, sometimes the more radical the surgery needed to get us ready for what God has for us. And if we look at the young Joseph at 17, it's obvious he had some, let's say, some serious character flaws. He was a telltale. There's no question that this issue of him being hated by his brothers and wearing the coat and being special and probably not working had kind of got to him a little bit. What I think is amazing is that here's a guy who <clears throat> almost certainly had a pride problem don't think it's interesting that God, who knew he had a pride problem, gave him a dream about elevation anyway. But God knew that Joseph had to sort out somewhere on the journey what was God and what was God's promotion purposes and what was his own pride. You know, pride can seriously hinder God's working in our lives. You know that. What does it say in Proverbs? Pride comes before a fall. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. 
And so something of that season, and you know, um, Pastor Robert Morris from Gateway Church, who thrilled to say in about three weeks time is coming to speak at Kingsgate. Hallelujah. But he's written a great book on Joseph, and he was saying that it's one of the reasons for the length of Joseph's delay was because there was this pride deal. And for those of you who've ever battled with pride, you know very often pride, there's a root in insecurity and inferiority. It's all going on there. And God knows he can't allow a prideful, insecure guy to be running an empire. And so there's a work going on in his life. And what evidence do we see for this pride? Well, he gets these dreams of elevation. So who does he go and tell the very dreams to? The brothers. The very guys who the dream was about. I'm going to be lifted above you. So he tells them once, and then he tells them a second time. Can I say, if you've had a dream from God, please don't go telling the world you're going to become the next Billy Graham or... You see, if pride's in our heart, our mouth can give us away. And we can see that working in Joseph. But God is good, amen? And God is preparing his man, and he wants to get him ready. And see this preparation season laid out in the Psalms. Psalms 105, 17 to 19, looks back on the Joseph story and summarizes how God sent a man. That's Joseph. He had a great purpose. Sent him a man before them. Joseph sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons till he foretold what came to pass. Till, listen to this, the word of the Lord proved him true. There was a time when Joseph was ready. There's a time when the circumstances were ready. And Joseph then would have looked back on those years as we did on our early years and thought, tough as it was, awful as it was, it was worth it because now I'm at the place that God has designed for me. It's greatly encouraging, isn't it? We can learn from Joseph's season. As I look back at our first four years, it was a tough time. It was tough spiritually. We were conscious of a spiritual battle. It was tough financially, having to believe God, literally just to pray an extra money to pay for our monthly bills. We had to learn some tough lessons about how to do marriage well together and how to bring up our girls in the ways of the Lord. Lessons that I'm so grateful we learned all those years ago. And it was like there was a sense of irony going on. God had said, think big. We were staying stubbornly small. You know, the, the, the 9 to 15 and back down to, 16, back down to 6. And, and the, the sense of... Am I going to believe God in those times? Am I going to allow the intimidation of the enemy to cause us to doubt? Because guess what? As well as God working, as well as other people working, you know in those seasons there's an enemy who's trying to discourage you, who's trying to cause you to um, take almost like a rock of disappointment into your life. Anyone been there? Some of you may be there right now. And at the close of this service, I want to help you get free from disappointment and doubt and despair. The enemy loves to put those things. And we had to learn, God, you've said it. We choose to believe it. Therefore, devil, back off in Jesus' name. It's the word of the Lord is going to come to pass. So there were faith lessons. And then there was a, a pride lesson. Some of you heard me say this before, but we got to a point where particularly after we'd gone down to six, after 18 months. 
I remember saying, God, I can't build this church. A sense of a smile from heaven. Good, I'm glad we've got that sorted. For me, it was like that sense of almost for the first time in my life, it felt like, I'm sure I had failed in many other areas, but it felt like I was failing. I didn't know how to do this. And I'm so glad I learned those lessons that if anything was going to happen, it was going to be by God's grace, by God's power. And my job and the job of us as leaders is to pray and obey and partner with the Spirit. There was, there was dealings of pride. And can I say, as we look back at that time, if you'd come and almost like we could do a snapshot, like go back in the TARDIS 28 years ago, and you'd have flown into one of our meetings at tops 25 people. The worship team, a guitarist, and me playing the tambourine badly. You'd have thought, big? A dream? And, I, and you said, well, I don't think there's a lot going on here. Can I tell you there was a lot going on? But it was going on in us. It's what I call, it was a season of root work before, the, before fruit work. How many want God to do something great in and through your life? Five of you. How many want God to do something great in your life? It's not a trick question. Well, there's sometimes we need to learn there are seasons where we need to put down deep roots in the soil of God's love and purposes, ready for great growth and great fruit. So can I encourage you, if in any way you feel like you're in a preparation season, either at the start, you're in transition, maybe at halftime, or you just sense God doing a deeper work in your life. Don't doubt, don't quit, don't be discouraged. Know that if it's his word and his promise, it is going to come to pass, and it's going come to come to pass in the right time. Listen to this, uh, Habakkuk 2 verse 3, it says, If it, the vision or dream, seems slow in coming, what have we got to do? Wait. It's on its way. It will come right on Time. Whose time? God's time, not ours. So that's the first thing. Trust that God is preparing you. But there's a second critical lesson that I want to lay out today, and it's this. As well as trusting that God is preparing you, there's a challenge for all of us, and there's a challenge for you right now, which is this. Forgive those who have offended you. Forgive those who have offended you. See, during this preparation season, I've studied this for many years, and I've kind of identified three main tests that Joseph had to face. And we're going to look at one of those tests next weekend. It's the test of faithfulness, how Joseph has to basically pass the test of dealing with a full-on sexual temptation, how to be faithful. Then in a fortnight's time, I'm going to look at the whole theme of how to be fruitful, how to learn to prosper when you're not in where God ultimately wants you to be. How to prosper in tough times. Test of faithfulness, test of fruitfulness. But today, we're going to look at, I believe, one of the most important tests we ever face in life, and it's the test of forgiveness. Charles Swindle, in his book on Joseph, a man of integrity and forgiveness, writes this. Here is one on the list of God's greats. A life lived high above the all-too-common reactions 
of rage, resentment, and revenge. Here is one who deliberately chose to overlook unfair offenses, to overcome enormous obstacles, and to model a virtue that is fast becoming lost in our hostile age, forgiveness. Let's say that word together, forgiveness. It's worth pausing just to digest for a moment how much Joseph had to forgive. Imagine growing up where all your siblings hate you and are jealous of you. Think how cruel children, teenagers can be. It says it in the first part of Genesis 7, 37 we read last week. They, they couldn't speak a kind word to him. It's so all your life you've had that going on. Then there's the odd sense of you're the odd one out, almost embarrassing favoritism from your dad. You've lost your mum at the age of 12. But the real offence, the great offence that took place in Joseph's life is what we heard earlier on. The brothers' hatred and jealousy reach absolute boiling point and they literally decide, right, once and for all, we're going to kill this dreamer and we're going to kill the dream. So here's Joseph. He's physically and psychologically abused at a very deep level. He's nearly murdered by his own brothers. And he's sent into slavery in Egypt. Let's just pause for a moment and think how awful that would have been. You go away from your home country, no modern transportation. It's like, as far as Joseph's concerned, his whole life has just been wrecked in that moment. And I, you know, we don't need to be very aware, but you can just turn on the news and read the papers. I sometimes just talk to people in the gym. Awful things are happening to often innocent people by evil, and it's, let's just call it what it is. It's evil. Evil is at work in the world. And what we don't know, because I'm Surprisingly, the narrator's silent as to the emotions that Joseph is feeling as we're reading it. We just hear what's happening to him. The only glimpse we have is later on when the brothers are uh, guiltily recalling what happened. This is what they say. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. It's a sorry tale of great evil and great offense. But, say but. You see, we can't always control what happens to us. We do have power over how we respond to what happens to us. What I think is remarkable, as I've read this passage for many years, what's incredible in these next chapters is what we don't find. I mean, I would expect to find the next time we hear about Joseph, or sometime late, later, here was a bitter, twisted young man, full of depression, full of anger, full of self-pity. And yet it's just not there. In fact, instead, the next time we read about Joseph, there's an interlude in chapter 38 um, to do with his brother Judah going off and doing all kinds of stuff that he shouldn't be doing. But the contrast we see in chapter, the beginning of chapter 39, Joseph is now in Egypt. He's become, now he's gone from being a slave to actually 
um, working for Potiphar. And then through Genesis 39, four times in, in so slightly different but the language, but the same basic thought, this phrase keeps coming back. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Now, guess what? If God is with him and he's prospering, that says first and foremost that God is a good God. Amen? And that's saying that God is still at work even in the midst of all he's gone through and going through. Such hope in there. But also, can I suggest to you, the absence of negativity to do with Joseph's own reactions tells me something. Somehow, somewhere, and we're not told how or why, he must have found something of a grace to forgive in his heart his brothers. Because if you look at the rest of Scripture, you'll see that bitterness and unforgiveness can be a block to what God wants to do. And if you look at Joseph's next season, although it was tough, it was almost like nothing was hindering him. Everywhere he goes, he gets promoted. Everything he does seems to turn out right. He's an incredible example of God's favor. And even when he has another reverse, as we'll see next week, and he gets falsely accused of rape and put in prison, even in prison he prospers. Now, for those of you who know the story, there's another time gap between the offense, Joseph obviously having to deal with it in his heart, and then many years later, when the vision is being fulfilled, and he's there, he's the ruler of Egypt, and he literally sees the brothers bowing before him. There's another process that goes on. It actually takes two years from when he first sees them to when he finally reveals himself to his brothers and they are reconciled and the whole thing, as it were, comes back and there's healing and there's restoration. He sees his long-lost dad. It's a beautiful story. Stay on the journey, folks. It's a wonderful, wonderful story of reconciliation and redemption. But here's the thing. I believe we need to grasp that we don't have to wait to forgive until there's actual physical reconciliation. Because the reconciliation was as much important for the brothers and for their healing. But somehow, somewhere along the journey, Joseph learned to forgive in his heart. And we have to learn to forgive others in our hearts. And can I say sometimes, particularly if the offense is great, it's not even safe to be immediately reconciled to something. We need wisdom there, but we do need to forgive wholeheartedly and as soon as we possibly can by the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's talk briefly about this whole thing of forgiveness. What is forgiveness and why is it so vital? Can I say what forgiveness is not? Forgiveness is not saying what the other people have done doesn't matter. It's not trivializing the offense in any way. Don't think, well, if I forgive... I'm letting them off the hook. No, that's not what this is about at all. What forgiveness is, is coming before a God of all grace and basically saying, God, you love me, you've forgiven me, and I can't handle revenge. Vengeance is yours. 
Justice is yours. I can't handle it. I need to get free because I don't want anything hindering your grace working in and through my life. It's a choice, as it were. I don't know you ever do this if you know, you've got unforgiveness. We can almost put people in the cage of our hearts. And we can think that somehow by keeping them there, we're getting back at them. So we, we re- remind ourselves the offense. We take them out of the cage of our hearts, and we almost like mentally and verbally beat them up, stick them back in the cage. Can I say the only person who's being harmed by that is you and me. That's why right at the heart of the Lord's Prayer, and if you look in Matthew's account, it's the one line of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus revisits to emphasize how important it is. But in Luke's version, he says this, we are called to pray. You you know this. We all know this, I'm sure. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You see, because God is a God of grace and forgiveness, who wants to release the fullness of his blessing in our lives, he knows that for us to walk in freedom, we have to learn to release, forgive other people too. And not forgiving others, if you look at the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, the suggestion from that parable that not forgiving others can actually put us in prison and torment. A few examples. I've seen this working for decades now. Early days of the church. Some reason, Karen developed a sudden sharp pain in her back. And, you know, we believed in healing then as we do now. So we went at it. We, you know, we bound it, loosed it, we nuked it. We did everything we knew what to do. We laid hands, we anointed with oil, we named it, we claimed it, and still the pain was there. And after a short while, Karen then sensed the Lord showing her, reminded her of something that somebody in the congregation had said to her that she'd taken on board, took the hurt on, took the offense. She forgave that person, and guess what happened? Immediately the pain left. Fast forward a few years later, we're in a kind of a freedom ministry weekend. And the particular topic that had just been taught on was the whole issue of the importance of forgiveness. There's a lady in the congregation who had a, her neck, couldn't move her neck, it was actually in a neck brace. She came forward for ministry, got sorted, forgave whoever she needed to forgive, came back, sat in her seat, somebody called her a name, and she went like that and her neck was completely released. Now, what I'm not saying is that every sickness... And every physical pain we experience is caused by unforgiveness. Not at all. But it does show that it can open the door to that. And if it can work like that in our bodies, how much more do you think unforgiveness messes with our mind, will, and emotions? Do you know there's something about living life free of offense. The peace that comes is incredible. And guess what? God wants that for you and he wants that for me. The good news is, This work of forgiveness is still going on. Over the years, hundreds and hundreds of people have experienced similar freedom. I just had the privilege of reading some very recent testimonies from one of our freedom courses, Celebrate Recovery, and just again struck by how many people talked about 
Not only knowing God's forgiveness towards them, which is foundational, but then being able to forgive and let go others. Here's just one of a number. This person said, I've come to realize that I was holding on to hurts caused by family members, and I was allowing this to cause resentment and bitterness in my life. Through the course, by coming before God, asking for his help time and time again, and by the Holy Spirit's power, it's not always easy, I've been able to forgive, let go of hurts, and now more and more able to accept my family members for who they are. Yes, people will let us down, but God never will. I've been able to declare over my life that my identity is firmly in being a child, a father, God. I'm still on a journey, but I'm grateful that God is giving me a new love for those that I sometimes find difficult. And I could give you many other stories of people who are saying, yes, I want to go on that journey of forgiveness. So how do we forgive, especially when the offense like Joseph is great, it's huge? Well, here can I say, we have a massive advantage over Joseph because Joseph lived pre the cross, we live post the cross. We have the greatest example of forgiveness, even greater than Joseph's, in Jesus Christ. And more than that, we have his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. Could give you loads of texts. Let me just give you one. In Ephesians chapter 3, chapter 31, uh, verse 31 and 32, Paul is urging the Christians then and us today to get rid of harmful negative attitudes. It says this. Notice the language, it's strong. Get rid. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Let's read this together. Forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. You see, when I've struggled with unforgiveness, the first thing I do is I remember, I remind myself, I focus on the enormous debt the unpayable debt that Jesus paid for me. As I think about what he suffered, and he was totally righteous and innocent in order that I, the guilty one, might be set free, might have my sins forgiven now, and for all eternity I can stand before my Father, righteous and accepted and clean. that becomes bigger than even what seems like a big offense. And let's be honest, sometimes the things we struggle to forgive are petty. Think of the enormity of what Jesus has done. And on that basis, as you ponder on what he's done, in a moment, that's why we're going to be focusing on the cross and taking communion, as we ponder on what he's done, and then we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. We can let people go. We can take them out of the cage of our hearts and we can go free. Reconciliation is another whole message. But for now, let's settle that we need to forgive fully, unconditionally, and freely from our hearts. So my question is, who do you need to forgive? Do you have any unresolved issues relating to other people? 
If you do, take comfort from Joseph. He endured huge hardship. And yet hundreds of years prior to Christ's coming, he found a grace somehow, somewhere to forgive and move on. And as a result, the Lord was with him and he prospered. Now post-Calvary, you and I have the benefits of being recipients of his unconditional and total forgiveness. That means we can forgive and we must forgive in Jesus' name. Now, as I was praying in the week for this message, I just had a sense that God wants to bring freedom to many of us today. Seasons of preparation, short or long, or just a sense of God doing something deep in our lives. It's, it's tough stuff, but it's real. It's what we have to go through. And as well as the positive lessons of learning to trust that in those times God is preparing you and forgive those who offended you. I, I, I just had this, this illustration that I want, I want to share with you and we're going to respond. I, I want to think, us to think about rocks. When dreams and visions don't look like they're coming to pass... It's almost like in our own hearts and the enemy can sow almost like a stumbling block in our lives. It's like we can have a rock of disappointment in our lives. Today, in Jesus' name, wherever you're at on the journey, I want you to come and I want you to lay down a rock of disappointment and saying, by the grace of God... Lord, you are at work in my life. I'm not going to let disappointment rob me. I'm not even going to let worse things like despair or depression get a hold of me. I'm going to renew my hope in Jesus' name. And there's a second rock that I believe for some of us we need to lay down. And it's this one. It was the rock for Joseph. It's the rock of pride. How many want to hasten God's purpose in your life, not slow it down? I believe it's vital that we come and humble ourselves before the Lord and we ask him to do a work in our hearts and we lay down pride. And then the third thing relates to what we've just talked about, the rock of offense. All of us experience this at some times in our lives, but we want to come and we want to take people out of the cage of our hearts and we want to lay them down before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness all of the time. Thank you, Lord, for the great purpose that you have for each and every one of our lives. And thank you, Lord, that even when evil people do evil things, even when we go through stuff and we don't understand it, because you're good, you can even use those things for our good to prepare us what you have for us. Thank you for the incredible forgiveness that you've released to us through the cross. Help us now by your Spirit to forgive those who've offended us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.